Hello and welcome to Future of London City Bites, a new podcast talking with urban practitioners from different sectors sharing stories, practical insights and ideas. Future of London is an independent cross-sector network for urban practitioners. We champion leadership and diversity in the built environment, share best practice and connect good people. To find out more, visit futureoflondon.org.uk. I'm Peter O'Brien. I'm the Assistant Director for Regeneration and Economic Development at Harringay Council. And for my many and varied sins, I am also a Future of London alumnus. Future of London's alumni are graduates of its acclaimed London and Manchester leadership programmes and represent a growing cross-sector network of next wave urban leaders. This is our fifth podcast in a series where influential urban leaders talk with us about staying resilient and effective during the COVID crisis. It's also part of our multimedia learning from crisis program. Our guest today is Ria Bales, Group Director of People and Change at Housing Association One Housing. Ria leads One Housing's human resources, corporate communications, training, resident engagement and social mobility teams. She has been at the forefront of their diversity drive and notably oversaw the introduction of the sector-wide women in leadership program to help women develop top-class management skills. Welcome, Ria. Thanks, Peter. So, Ria, um, at Haringey, we are slowly emerging from a crisis response mode. We're definitely not out of it yet, but I'm wondering what it's, what it's been like for you and One Housing Group since the COVID crisis started. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I think, as, as you quite, quite rightly pointed out, it's kind of emerging and it's kind of coming out of that. And, and just coming back to, do you remember that, that week that it kind of it unfolded, really, I guess? And, and, and I remember the Sunday, um, I was meant to be going on holiday with the family, um, and it was that Sunday that the planes were actually turned around kind of midair, and we could see that there was a problem that was um, that was coming. It was complex. It was growing. It was it was already big, but we could see that this was becoming much much more kind of problematic. And we'd already been planning, therefore, for um, the impact that coronavirus was going to have. We've been issuing laptops to the last few people that had needed them. Um, we've been investing in technology for kind of the past year, two years or so as part of our customer services improvements, but never really, I guess, realised actually to, to the test that that was, that that was going to be put. Um, Monday, the 16th of March, if you remember, was the very first of those five o'clock government briefings. Um, and Monday evening, the Prime Minister suggested that non-essential travel might not be wise. Um, but there weren't any really clear instructions around that. Um, so we went into kind of Tuesday morning, that next morning, giving all of our employees 24 hours notice that we were going to do a full test on our IT systems at that point. Um, everyone working from home that had normally been in the offices and that no one was to go in on Wednesday. And I think at that point, you know, we knew that we needed to move quickly um, on this. By the end of that Wednesday, um, when we'd done the test, we, we realised that the systems could stand up. That was fine. They'd be able to stand up to the pressure that was going to be placed on them um, with, with no access to offices. And, and it ended up being that that was it. We just we told people not to come back in. That evening, it was announced that schools were going to close at the end of the week. Um, and then on Friday, the announcement came that the pubs, cafes, restaurants, you know, the whole, the whole lot um, closed down and we entered into lockdown. So I think that kind of the reflection maybe on that week is just absolutely, it's, it was astounding really and, and I think maybe that five o'clock time I've, I've thought through in my mind a number of times that it was really difficult to hear those announcements I think at five o'clock because it felt like it was at the end of the day and it didn't give you much time 
actually thinking about it a bit further, I think it was probably quite useful to have it at that time because it gave leaders of organisations kind of 12 hours to plan. So we'd sit, our executive team, we would sit down five o'clock, we'd, you know, on our sofas, we would be watching the briefing, we'd plan what we needed to do for the next day, we'd get on a call that evening, pull it all together and plan the kind of the communications and the residents to staff. But yeah, it was absolutely astounding that first week. Uh, it's really interesting. When I when I think back to it, we, I was in a meeting at the time with what must have been at least 20 people in a crowded meeting room. And it feels like a very, very different world. Um, just as a bit of a follow up question to that, I suppose at Harringay, through, through everything that's been going on, we, we've had this sense that we've almost never known our residents and businesses better, that this kind of incredibly difficult period has given us an opportunity to really get under the skin of what's going on uh, in people's lives yes during the crisis but also kind of more, more generally as well and we feel we've made a lot of really valuable connections through all of this and so I was wondering what is your sense of pressures that your residents have been going through in all of these COVID times is there is there anything that surprised you? Whether it's surprising or whether it has just become clearer I guess how things have changed and the way that we see them in our communities has certainly changed. So our safer communities team, I mean, their, their workload has absolutely shot through the roof. Um, you kind of mental health issues are more prevalent or obvious. Um, obviously there's noise issues where people are sat at home. Um, the annoyance around kind of TV noise levels and things are now obviously much, much more common. Um, I think we're seeing more kind of the antisocial behavior um, domestic violence, obviously, and there's been, you know, the terrible, terrible increases um, around domestic violence that, of course, has been reported. Your children witnessing things at home. Yeah, these are some of the really kind of dark, horrible parts of our world that I just don't think they're as invisible anymore as perhaps they were when, when we ran off to work. We're now, I, know, I guess we're now living in our communities much more. The way that our customer facing um, colleagues and employees have responded has just been absolutely amazing whether that's through doing emergency repairs whether that's looking after people in our care homes you know keeping the estates and communities clean they've been absolutely incredible um, I also think it is worth saying that there are some support functions that can quite often be invisible a lot of the time but they have really stepped into the critical space really well and I'd probably kind of shout out for the internal communications team and the IT teams during this time. Um, and where they have been perhaps, you know, sat back as support functions, they've been so, so important in terms of being able to keep customer services running during this really, really difficult time. I suppose um, I'm kind of thinking with everything that's going on, what is your sense of what type of leadership we need during a pandemic? Yeah, this is a big question, Peter, isn't it? And my sense and my belief is that the kind of this concept of um, having strong leaders is actually flawed. So I think you might you might describe that type of leadership style as the commander leadership style, the person that kind of knows what's best for everyone. And yes, they give a sense of confidence and they act quickly. And I absolutely think that that is helpful for short term crises. But for something that goes on and on and on, it has profound effects on all aspects of our life, particularly, remember, the emotional side of our lives. I think I'd say that the commander style is actually flawed. And I think, of course, there's obvious business resilience issues when you rely on kind of one person at the top. And the insight that only one person brings, of course, is kind of highly limited. 
best style of leader during these sorts of times, I think, are those that ask the right questions of organisations. And there's a the kind of the management textbook description of, of some of this is, is wicked problems. But essentially, that's just, you know, what are these really, really difficult to identify and solve and massively complex and constantly shifting type of problems? I'd argue that organisations just need to build the space away from day to day operations and for its leaders to be thinking really, really carefully through these complications or through, through the complexities um, so that they can anticipate, you know, they need to be looking to be able to plan well um, and devote you know, specific time for that. So I think really what we need is kind of leadership at all levels, not just the reliance on one. Why is it you think certain styles of leadership are resonating right now? And, and by implication, why are some not? Yeah, would it help maybe if I talk through maybe a couple of illustrations, um, perhaps, Peter? So I think currently there's an awful lot of comparison um, to political leaders with Winston Churchill. And I think actually probably only the avid Second World War history student would perhaps remember that um, he only really acted as that kind of commander in a crisis sense for probably less than a year between 40 and 41. He came under, there was some kind of fierce criticism in Parliament the following year. But actually, he spent most of, I think, he, kind of his time during that period really engaging with his military leadership. You know, there was a lot of focus on selecting in the right generals there was lots and lots of engagement around that and the kind of the demand of the leadership actually at all different levels if we talk about these wicked problems these really kind of complicating and shifting type problems actually i'd probably argue that he neglected some of those around kind of poverty and inequality facing the country yeah i, I don't think that he actually engaged people through a vision of the future that they would be wanting to fight for. And he actually left that, if you think about it, to his deputy prime minister, to Clement Attlee, who then went on to win the following general election, 1945. Um, and he built kind of the modern state as we know it. The other person that people, I think many, many people are talking about at the moment, of course, is Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand and her response to the pandemic. And, and I think I've spent a fair bit of time looking at that and trying to translate that into business leadership and, and what, how we should be leading our organisations. And if you, if you look at how she has treated and how she's responded to the pandemic, so she went really, really early. She did an eight minute televised statement to the nation pretty early. And it was really interesting what she did. So she set out a clear structure of a four level COVID-19 alert system. Now this was really similar to what they already had for their fire risk systems. So people were familiar with that approach. So at that point, when she did the, when she announced this, there were only 52 coronavirus cases in New Zealand. But four days later, when they had 205 cases, she raised the alert straight up to that level four. Now other heads of state around the world were worrying about, you know, how do you maintain public support for the restrictions that might come in place? You know, they were kind of worrying around some of these, you know, these really complex problems and the shifting bits um, around the problem. But actually, she'd been really, really honest up front. And for that, she got 80% public approval at the end of March, because she'd got a really clear system that she'd explained, meant that the people knew in advance that escalation was coming, and they knew what would be required of them. So I think that communication, that honest early communication from leaders is so important. And I think quite often 
we think about kind of the content of what we're trying to get across and we fail to do probably two basic things. So we quite often fail to explain the context that we just take for granted, the information that we see on a day-to-day -day basis and that we just forget that others, that others don't know about. And I think we, we explain things quite often from a snapshot moment in time rather than actually spending our time explaining the whole picture and helping people to understand why we make decisions. And I'd say the second point that you quite often see um, that, people, that people fail to do is we often fail to put ourselves in the shoes of others and use empathy. And I love Brené Brown's TED talk on empathy. So she talks about recognising others' perspectives and recognising emotion in others and communicating that. So she talks about empathy is feeling with people and what makes people feel better is connection. How do you as a leader connect with your people? And I think Jacinda Ardern is a really good example of how she has used empathy to gain that connection with people. Her communication, it was really clear, it was honest, it was compassionate. You know, she was saying sacrifices are to come and she's kind of, she's inspired people to kind of keep moving forward together. So on the, I think at the end of that kind of first week, that 21st of March um, week, she ended her speech by thanking New Zealand for what they were about to do. So she saw ahead that there was the potential for division and fear and that that could come about from the uncertainty. And she tackled that really on with some really powerful parting words. She said, please be strong, be kind and unite against COVID-19. And I thought, I thought that was really interesting. You then, you then kind of put that together with, only a few days later, she puts out this video on Facebook in a sweatshirt at home after putting her baby to bed, explaining to people, I think she was sat on her bed or sat on her sofa, explaining to people how this was likely to play out. So she says, yeah, don't be disheartened. She repeats this a number of times. It, look after each other. Grab essentials for your neighbours if, you if they need them and put, just pop them on the doorstep. And that's the type of language that she was using. So she spoke with that empathy and connection. So I think good leadership in kind of times like this starts with appreciation of the type of problem this pandemic presents and so that we can prepare people for actually what is ahead. So if we go back to that kind of that commander style that I was talking about, acting quickly, yeah, absolutely good, but in a way that is empathetic and, and acknowledging that we're going to ask people to do you know, some really, really tough things. And I think when, when I look at job descriptions for many chief exec roles, there's quite a heavy focus on directing and analysing. There's quite a few financial words in those documents. But what I don't see is a huge amount of, of articulation around the skills needed to bring people together. So to have that understanding of how people respond, behavioural theories. And that always surprises me some bit because I think yeah, a leader of an organisation is a person that is in charge of people. It's, it's really interesting with Jacinda Ardern that you point out um, her kind of her obvious empathy and that connection she's, she's able to create with other people. Uh, another word that comes to mind for me is, is relatability. She's just so easy to connect with as somebody who seems to just be a credible kind of, I, I, I hate to kind of use the expression, almost like normal everyday human being, but she doesn't come with the trappings of elitism or that sense that she is another. I, the next question I have for you is around kind of what you think uh, leaders need to be thinking about during these sorts of times. Yeah, I completely agree, Peter. And I think continuing on that theme, if we take things, key things around business continuity, 
Um, it's really important to give leaders a space to kind of that horizon scanning, anticipate what's coming, you know, the, the operational running of the business, control frameworks, your procedures. If we take that as a given, I think the thing that I would quite like to focus on, and it's the bit that is really easy to neglect and the bit that we've just been talking about is understanding people. Because as a leader, you are helping people through this and you've got to get your organisation and your people through this. Um, and I think kind of appreciating that, that crises and change really disrupts people's expectations of the future. And we all act really differently when we have that sense of, um, of reduced control, really, that things are outside of our control. And this does affect how we process information. So um, traditional communication styles, the way that perhaps we have acted in the past, we need to really think carefully about as to whether they are going to land and whether that is the, the appropriate way to be helping people through it. Maybe if we explore that a little bit further. So in times of kind of high anxiety and stress, the, the part of the brain that actually deals with emotions starts to overtake kind of the cognitive system that does the analysis and, and, and the interpretation of behavior. So what we see then often as a result is that panic and a protective state of mind. So, and, and we refer to this as kind of that fight or flight type syndrome. And that response is just in us, it's in our DNA. So I think it's not really surprising that that can have, of course, a massive impact on job performance and how we react and how we behave um, at work in, in, in the working environment. So I think, yeah, and, and of course that has consequences. Yeah, there's potentially compromising safety, there's quality, there's productivity, that's all really serious stuff for an organization. So I think this kind of, this aspect of trying to understand people, it isn't a nice thing that, that people should be leaving further on down the to-do list. It is really core to a leader's role in helping people through these types of situations. I'd suggest, I think kind of if, people want to be looking at this in terms of their leadership style, there's probably three things to focus on. So I think leaders need to be aware of what people hear, not what they're being told. And we all kind of, I think we all kind of go, why, why aren't people seem to get what, what I'm trying to tell them? And that quite often is under stress in these types of situations, people just have kind of difficulty hearing, processing, understanding, recalling information. Um, our attention span shrinks to something, you know, really, really short, 12 minutes or so or less. So when we think about these kind of big town hall things or hour long you know, staff question and answers and things, in actual fact, I'm not sure that they're doing much. It's much more around the small, concise messaging, visual aids, storytelling. I think the second thing that I suggest is actually how, how, do, how do you best reach your people? Because again, under stress, People tend to trust those that they know and that they respect. And I think there's a balance to strike between, yes, they want to hear from the leader of the organisation, but they also want to hear from somebody that they come in regular contact with and that they have an existing relationship and probably their line manager as well. So I think choosing kind of the messengers who have got demonstrated credibility, that have got those existing relationships that have been effective in the past kind of really becomes important. And then I think the third thing would be consideration about actually how are they likely to respond. And pushback and resistance, of course, is inevitable. I mean, it's, it's absolutely natural with any type of major change. And I think it can be seen actually as a positive sign. I think it's a good thing. It is, you know, surely it's evidence that people are actually hearing your message. Um, and it's that natural reaction to feeling a loss of control. So I think leaders 
really should embrace some of that resistance when it emerges because it's only then that they actually get the insight into how people are feeling and they can respond accordingly and so coming back to the kind of that empathy point yeah i think the right reaction to resistance is to listen with empathy and then at that that gives that the opportunity then to remind people why things need to change and you're able to start to get into a dialogue rather than naturally forming some kind of protective um kind of aspect or defensive aspect to it so i think they were understanding the people and i'm picking that as i've done um, a little bit is probably what i would try to encourage leaders to think about when going through this and not to necessarily default into operational running of the business really interesting one of the things that i've noticed in uh, recent weeks and months the degree of openness in the organization that is really hard to quantify but is really exemplified by very very simple things We've changed, as I'm sure you have, radically the way that we work on a daily basis. We're doing huddles all over the place. We're doing all team briefings. We're doing kind of spotlights. We're doing a really broad range of things, which for us are quite new. Uh, but one of the things that struck me is just how willing staff members, leaders, the chief exec, you name it, everybody has kind of shown a willingness to open up and tell their story. So on my departmental um, all team uh, briefing every fortnight, we have a, a specific spotlight where we just go to random staff members and invite them to kind of talk about their world, what's happening and, and communicate like what the reality of their life feels like. And it's been one of the kind of the most insightful and kind of like favorite little moments that I have in my, my typical, um, typical fortnight. So I wanted to ask you, we've kind of covered everything from global leaders and who's doing it well and maybe who's doing it not so well. And we talked a bit about some of the kind of the, the more abstract conceptual side of it as well. I was wondering what all this means for One Housing Group and in particular your residents and your customers. Feeling through, I think, on this, the, the trust and the empathy point. Um, I firmly believe people want to be told the truth, to know also that they have been heard as well when they speak. So that was interesting that you were saying about kind of the huddles and, and that point. I mean, that's absolutely great. And it's so important, isn't it? Because individuals get the chance to get the chance to talk and to share things and to feel as though they are being heard. And you also get great insight actually into the world in which they are living and to, to kind of the, what is really important to them or what are the struggles, because then you can that can affect your decisions and you can respond accordingly. We'd been um, really lucky that we'd already been working on a new website. And so we immediately put up coronavirus information based on the data that we had got, which had been identifying the most kind of common issues. So for us, that was around what can people expect from our repair service? You know, what are we doing to keep our estates and communities clean and safe? Advice around paying rent, um, acknowledging household struggles and what is happening also in our care schemes, for example giving people really clear and concise messaging that we talked about yet safety is absolutely paramount we're following government guidelines and we will try to keep service disruption to a minimum because we know that you rely on us and to be fair i mean all of the other bits that of course you know very very important outside of coronavirus actually now kind of felt as though we just needed to clear away all of that other stuff because there were other priorities that we had um, i mean it was great that we had the data that was kind of that was talking to us about it we've also tried to stay in touch so i think that is kind of access to information and the way that we were sharing it we have worked really hard on but also we've tried to stay in touch with people we call hundreds of our residents um, each week check they're okay 
um, check in with them. It gives us again a kind of a temperature check on on how people are feeling. We've been delivering food packages. We've been doing increased, I think, probably working with partner organisations and communities as well, which I think is absolutely great and and really important. Um, and so I think that kind of gives you a sense of I think we've we've been listening to residents. We've been understanding what is important to them at this point in time and then we have been trying to adapt what is now you know very valuable resources to try to resolve those kind of areas and to and to deliver those services that are most important it is a time where the words resilient and adaptive behavior seem to come up an awful lot um, and that can range from the complex organizational to just how you run your household we, we've spoken a little bit about this being a time of, of great challenge, um, but with that challenge and with that adversity, we've also seen uh, the space be created uh, and frankly the necessity emerge for huge innovation. I was wondering what is the one thing from COVID times that you would like to hold on to into the future? Yeah, so Peter, I just mentioned about some of that kind of partnership working, particularly with kind of organisations that are out there in communities. Maybe that's one of the good things that we'll want to keep hold of from this is, is the recognition of those really, really important roles that support communities. Um, you know, health, education, housing, we are seeing much more public recognition of these. And I think also the increased community cohesion as well. I think it would be a real, real shame to lose that. Um, I also think kind of leaders across London in, in, in all of our sectors, you know, have a really important role in to play in kind of supporting that in the future. I couldn't agree anymore. It's, it's one of the most profound legacy points that we're holding on for dear life, which is the connection that we've got with our communities and with our business community indeed as well has genuinely never felt stronger and I think we're really keen to kind of build on that. It's not the end of something, it's, it's the start of something new and that sort of compassion that you've alluded to in society that seems to have grown quite substantially. Hopefully we'll see that continue to be translated into ongoing investment in the necessary services in the years ahead. Lastly, a, a question that we've been asking across the whole series, in a post-COVID world, what one thing would you like London to change or do differently? I think following on, on that point, probably Peter, having a shared endeavour and seeing so many organisations and parts of our community come together and try to solve some of these big, um, big problems and big questions, I'd like to see that continue. Um, and so kind of rather than going away and going back to how we used to operate, I think having that recognition that we rely on, we rely on our health workers and we rely on quite often what are some invisible roles and invisible kind of parts that people play to our community. I'd certainly ask that that kind of that shared endeavour and working together is maintained. Could, couldn't agree more. So we've come to uh, more or less the end of the interview and I, I suppose I was just particularly struck by some of the qualities of leadership that you've unpacked for us in today's session. Uh, in particularly, sort of some of my takeaways from this would be about the clarity of message uh, and expectations in their management. You touch on safety and in particular empath empathy and truth. It strikes me that in a world in crisis, a potentially very sceptical society may well, well be looking for leaders to become more approachable, relatable, and above all, honest. And that's a really powerful message, I think, for, for all of us. 
equally, one might say that those leaders that don't have some of those attributes um, are a really shining example of, of what not to do uh, when you've got to try and guide, whether it's an organization, a community, or a nation through particularly stormy seas. Ria, with that, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your insight. Thanks so much, Peter. I'm Peter O'Brien, and this has been a Future of London City Bytes podcast. Thank you to all of you for listening. For information on our next podcast and on the Learning from Crisis programme, visit futureoflondon.org.uk. Goodbye.